0: And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word for us today.
1: Thank you, Danielle. Let's pray together once again here as we look to God's word. Father, we thank you for this remarkable story. And the incredible, deep, life-changing truths that we find within it. Wherever it is we may be coming from this morning, whether we are tempted to see Jesus as uh, an obstacle or barrier of some type, or whether we have been walking with him as our king for many years, we pray that you would use this story, these words even, as we reflect on them, to help us truly appreciate who this God with us child is and what it means even for our day-to-day lives that he has come to save us from our sins and to rule as our king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It depends how you look at it. I'm sure you guys have heard this phrase before. We've all heard it. It's very common. Uh, not to mention, probably also each been in a situation where that phrase has proven to be very True. It depends how you look at it. Uh, a situation, for instance, which at first could only be described as a, as a life crisis, when you lost a job, or, or had some other major disappointment in life, maybe like a, a low point in your marriage, for instance. But then with time, maybe as you gained a bit more context, or just as life continued to progress, you know, our, our perspective on these things can start to shift. And these circumstances, which we first thought were just a crisis, can turn out to be even something else entirely, even something very good, even something life-saving. Well, it may not have been exactly what we were expecting or even possibly something we thought could happen. Eventually, it can become clear that, that God is with us in these complicated details of our life, doing something far bigger, and much greater than we first thought. It's not to say that everything is relative and the only thing that matters is our perspective, but certainly we can all agree there are some perspectives that will keep us from seeing even the most important truths if they're even right there in front of our very face or in Joseph's case, in his fiance's womb. In this story, Joseph is presented with a major life crisis. The woman he planned to marry was pregnant, and the child was not his. To any man, that would be like really, really bad news, right? Really bad. But as this story progresses, he's going to see, and we will find with him, it depends how you look at it. With a vision of an angel, God helps Joseph to see that this is actually not a life crisis at all. This is the greatest news he has ever heard. And maybe when it comes to your relationship with God or or your perspective on Christ and Christmas and all that comes with these things, maybe you feel like that kind of a shift in perspective would be really welcome right now. Uh, For example, uh, maybe there is a way for you to look even at the, the details of your spiritual life differently to help make better sense of it and to find deeper, more lasting peace in it. But God just hasn't quite given you that dream with the angel yet, as he does here for Joseph. I think part of Matthew's aim in this passage is to comfort us in some of these ways as we follow Joseph's. Uh, incredible journey here of discovering who Jesus really is and how far from a personal crisis, this child is actually God's solution to our deepest and most ultimate crisis, the one that we all face. I hope you can find that kind of comfort and peace even today, even this morning, even right here in the pages of scripture. But as it often does, it depends how you look at this passage. The truth is, we don't really know all that much about either Mary or Joseph prior to this story of them. Uh, But we will come to find as we keep reading that they were what we referred to last week as Galilean commoners. One of these three groups we'll constantly be bumping into. They're practicing Jews from the more rural northern region uh, of Israel without much real power or influence or status. They were ordinary, everyday Jewish people. And the first thing we learn about them here is that they were betrothed. That word betrothed basically means engaged to be married, but in this setting and context, it carried a little bit more weight. It was more binding than our engagements even today. Notice in verse 18, Matthew tells us they were betrothed, and then right away in verse 19, he calls Joseph Mary's husband, as if their coming marriage was sort of already a done deal. Also, to get out of this betrothal, notice, uh, Joseph would have had to divorce Mary. Of course, the real headline, though, is that Joseph found out that his, basically, fiancé was now pregnant. That is, before they had come together as one flesh themselves. Now, in most cases, that could only possibly mean one very unfortunate thing, that Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph. That another man had conceived a child with her while Joseph was waiting to take her as his wife. Now, this is worth pointing out, right? Just just try to imagine the devastation that Joseph would have felt here. Maybe you have been betrayed in a similar way, even, and can relate. I have to tell you, I'm sorry, I actually can't. I I, I can't imagine how deeply soul-crushing it would be to hear this news that the woman you love and long to share your life with had conceived a child with someone else. You might even imagine that Joseph's anger from this situation could easily lead him to to kind of punish or shame her in some way for this, to even the score, to get back at her. But instead, Matthew tells us, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, this shows us, first, that Joseph was an incredibly kind and compassionate man in general. But more than that, it also shows that he had a deep, deep love for Mary. Interestingly enough, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, the Old Testament law specifically tells Jewish men how to handle a situation like this. Uh, here is what it says in particular about betrothed virgins who are unfaithful. It says, If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones the young woman because she did not cry for help though she was in the city, and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil, the law says, from your midst. This is how seriously God took this sort of thing. And with that in mind, it could be that Joseph wasn't just trying to keep Mary from the shame of of ridicule or sort of being an outcast. It could be that by keeping this quiet He was even keeping her from the shame of being put to death. Either way, really, it's just important for us to try and put ourselves in in Joseph's shoes here the best we can. We know where this story is headed. We know what's coming next, right? But at least for a time, he did not. Uh, For Joseph, this news of a baby growing inside of Mary's womb was a true crisis. Any reasonable man would have assumed very understandably, that his life was unraveling. But in the verses that follow, we're brought into Joseph's incredible journey from seeing Jesus as his life crisis to seeing Jesus as God's heavenly king. And so to do that, please look with me at verse 20. I just love this image to start. But Matthew tells us, as he considered these things, I want you to consider, uh, envision even, picture Joseph sort of sitting there, downtrodden in a wooden chair in his home, just sort of staring at the baseboard, right? Just thinking of this crisis, dejected. It says, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. In other words, as he sat there, dejected and thinking, he eventually just. He just sort of falls asleep, apparently, and and steps into a dream. Maybe you've been here before, even recently, so distraught that all you could do is just to think yourself to sleep. Uh, That seems to be where Joseph was. And then here, as he drifts off, is what happened next. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now really there are just, there are quite a few things uh, to point out here. First notice, as soon as the angel speaks, he refers to Joseph as a son of David. By doing this, the angel was almost certainly trying to draw Joseph's attention backward in time to where he stood in a long family line. Now for us as the reader, this should also remind us of what we just read last week. If you'll remember that Jesus was born into this royal line of David as one of his male descendants. In other words, this story is how that actually happened. And if you actually look back with me at verse 16 of chapter one, you can see Matthew did trace this royal line from David to King Jesus through Joseph. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Mary was not also a descendant of David. In fact, it seems she was. But we have to remember that for a first century Jew, this was not just a biological question like we may think of it today. Uh, who are these parent, this boy's biological parents? That wasn't the primary interest. More than that, it would have been a genealogical question. It basically, where should we place this kid here in the family tree? Essentially, whose household will this child be a part of? And as we discussed last week, these family lines were almost exclusively always traced through the men. So so in that sense, even if Mary was Jesus' biological mother, if some other Jewish man had come along after this divorce and taken her as his wife and then therefore adopted Jesus into his household as an earthly son, well, then Jesus would then be a part of that man's family line, not Mary's even. That, that is if, as a divorced woman, she was even able to find a husband to, to claim as part of the household. Now, with that in mind, hopefully you can see what was ultimately at stake here in Joseph's decision to take Mary as his wife. Actually, it's quite a bit. Matthew has written this to make us wonder, will, will Jesus actually be included in David's family royal line or not? Really, it will depend on how Joseph responds when he wakes up from this dream. That, by the way, is more than likely why the angel also tells Joseph to give Jesus his name, because naming a child in this way was actually a parental right. And so by taking Mary as his wife, Joseph would assume the role of Jesus' adopted earthly father, therefore welcoming Jesus into his household, and therefore including him in the royal line of David. A lot at stake in this story. But maybe most obvious here is this idea that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. We have to do something with that, don't we? We have to remember that as, as some of the first words ever penned in the New Testament For Matthew's readers, it was not by any stretch a foregone conclusion that God was both three in one. Therefore, this idea of the Holy Spirit conceiving a human child, it would have just stretched and even shattered most first century Jews' categories of God. They would have thought, what What does this even mean, right? Who and even really what will this child be? The truth is, Joseph didn't really know any of those details. He simply knew that this new adopted son of his was also a son of God. In some ways, it's as if this doctrine of the Trinity is almost even sort of materializing in this very passage. Uh, At least, at the very least, it's becoming far more clear and more explicit than it is in the Old Testament. Although it is there with a close and careful look. The name Holy Spirit, for instance, appears, but very seldomly in the Old Testament, in about one psalm and just one chapter in the book of Isaiah. Multiple passages do refer to the Spirit of the Lord, which often resides in God's special servants, typically his kings, but Jews would have just understood that to be the Spirit of Yahweh, right? the one true and living God, not certainly a distinct eternal person or, or, or one member of a triune Godhead. A close look at 2 Samuel our call to worship does at least make you wonder, doesn't it, about the Trinity? Uh, this idea of a human son of David who would also be a son to God. You can kind of see echoes of that there. Although, of course, many Jews hold to that prophecy and believe it very well, but would object to the idea of the Trinity even today. So in that sense, I guess it depends how you look at it. Suffice to say, this would have been very new for Matthew's readers, And also, it would have seemed very peculiar and very unexpected. Then, apart from even the doctrine of the Trinity, this passage also speaks to sort of just mere uh, Christology, who Jesus is, even independent of the Father and the Spirit, what is his nature. After Matthew's gospel was written here, it would take the church more than three centuries to arrive at a creed or confession that succinctly explains what the scriptures even just teach about who Jesus is. Namely, that he is truly and fully God, and also truly and fully man. He's not just one or the other. Uh, He's not both, even in part, alone. No, that he has two separate natures. He has a divine nature, which has always existed for all of eternity, as the creeds tell us, proceeds from God the Father. And here in this story, even he is taking on a human nature, a separate nature, which he inherits from Mary. This is the theological term here is called the, the hypostatic union. This idea that Jesus is the fullness of God and the fullness of man together in one person. And if that weren't enough, next, the angel tells us why this God man would be born. And in many ways, that was also unintuitive And surprising. He says, Mary will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which means, by the way, salvation or God saves. And then next we see why he should be named that. For the angel says, he will save his people from their sins. Of all the details here, this is probably most important and potentially quite shocking and unexpected as well to some of Matthew's first century readers, because having just read, especially Jesus' royal descent in this genealogy in chapter one, we're going to see very soon, many Jews were expecting this promised Kim to come and to save them from the Roman empire, to restore the nation of Israel to power in the promised land. But apparently this King Jesus was not coming to rescue the nation of Israel from a pagan empire at all. See, already we can see here that his rule, his reign, and and his kingdom, whatever that winds up being, is far more concerned with inner spiritual realities than it is with earthly political ones. Uh, This king was not coming to rescue his people from some earthly foe. This king was coming to rescue his people from their own sins. The next Matthew interjects here as the author, to sort of interpret all of these things for us. In verse 22, he says, All this took place, the conception, the dream, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now here's why this is really interesting. In one sense, and to be perfectly honest, If you go back and you actually read that prophecy in Isaiah chapter seven, in context, in one sense, it is just not about Jesus. It's not. There's a whole other story going on in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was making this prophecy to King Ahaz. He was referring to a different child who would later be born and was born. That term virgin here, it's a little bit ambiguous. It could mean simply that a virgin would conceive naturally and then go on to give birth. Uh, And and in the original story, that is what happens. In fact, it refers to Isaiah's son. And the idea was that by the time Isaiah's son was old and walking, uh, God would prove his point to King Ahaz that he could be depended on to save and protect the nation of Israel. In, In other words, the point is, it had nothing to do with this story, at least not directly. But as is often the case with biblical prophecy, there is a first, more immediate fulfillment to it, and then much later, a far greater and more ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus. We even saw this a little bit in the call to worship with 2 Samuel 7, right? There is this promised king, and in one sense he has iniquity. That refers to Solomon, who, who was in, in sin and had iniquity, but then Solomon doesn't grow up and live forever and rule from the throne of David eternally, and so that part doesn't refer to him, right? One part refers to Solomon, and then the next continues and is fulfilled in Christ. In that sense, I've heard it said that Old Testament prophecies are sort of like a path that are meant to lead you to a mountain. And often that first mountain is the thing you see. But if you just continue reading and slow down, it's as though if you just zoom out and look up, (laughs) there's an even bigger and far greater mountain beyond that first one that this prophecy is really pointing us to. This seems to be Matthew's point here. Jesus was the second far greater and more glorious mountain that Isaiah was ultimately, even possibly unknowingly pointing us to when he wrote Isaiah 7. But this time, the birth of this child was not just a promise that God would protect Israel. In the birth of this child, God himself had come to rescue his people from their sins once and for all. This is the first time Matthew does this, But we're going to see over and over again in the first few chapters of Matthew, he points to one Old Testament prophecy after another, and he says this took place to fulfill all that the prophets had said. We'll see it refraining over and over. This is all an effort to convince his mostly Jewish readers that go figure, in fact, yes, the king is here. So in the beginning of this story, I want you to notice, Joseph was ready to divorce Mary and move on because he saw Jesus as a crisis to be avoided. But by the end of this story, he does take Mary as his wife. In so doing, he welcomes Jesus into his household, and therein, the royal line of David. Why? It's because he's convinced that this child is not just a life crisis at all. This child is truly God with us. And so what message might God have for us here today? In many ways, it's not really different, I think, from the message that Joseph receives from this angel. I think it's that Jesus' birth is much bigger and more spiritual than it may appear. It really is. Now, there may be any number of reasons why we may need to hear that message today. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, listen, I've been to a million of these Advent services and I just have to tell you, I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't understand the good in all of this. If anything, when I think of Christmas, maybe you think, uh, and even the impact of Christianity on my life, all I feel is pain and regret. I don't even want to consider having this Jesus as my king, because I know where all this religion stuff eventually ends. It ends in sorrow and disappointment. Or maybe not. Maybe you're a longtime committed follower of Jesus who just needs reminding that this Jesus really is much bigger and more spiritual than he may seem to you now. Maybe... Right now, a handful of other unrelated trials are blocking your view of this King Jesus. Whatever it is that may be blocking your view, so to speak. Next, let's just consider how we can go from seeing Jesus and thinking crisis to seeing Jesus and thinking King. And there are at least three insights here that I think we can gain from our passage. The first one is this, let's look further back than just our lifetime. Let's look further back. You notice as Joseph sees this birth, the news of Jesus' birth, through the lens of God's age-old plan to redeem his people. When he sees it through the lens that he is a son of David himself, all of a sudden it starts to click for him, and this is no longer a crisis now. It is God's eternal rescue plan. And in the same way, I think we would benefit from zooming out and looking further back even in time and history to make sense first of Jesus, but then through Jesus to make sense also of our lives here today. We, like Joseph, need to look further back long before our lifetime to the story of God in Scripture so that we can see more clearly who Jesus really is and embracing him as king, how that will change our future. Today, with an abundance of information and the rapid pace of modern life, it can be very hard to have a backward-looking perspective like that, can't it? In some ways, we're kind of like that frog boiling in the kettle. You know this illustration, frog in the kettle. But instead of a kettle, it's more like we're in Best Buy with all the screens and the speakers and the devices and the blinky lights. And instead of boiling, I suppose, it's kind of like, we're at risk of a mental breakdown, right? Because all these screens and these speakers, they just keep playing these videos and these messages and these sounds. And, and I guess it's, it's not really important for us to be a frog either. So I guess it's really nothing like that illustration in the beginning, but, but, but let's just hear me out. It's true. It's true. We have more access to more information in, in any given week, really than most humans have ever had throughout the span of their entire life. And one effect of this flood of engaging content we can endlessly scroll through, it's that we put a real premium, we tend to put a real premium on what is happening and what people are saying like now, right now. We don't even have a 24-hour news cycle anymore. It's like hour by hour. And as a result, our, our focus is it's often hyper-concentrated on just on today we hardly ever think far in the future, let alone far back into the past. Even as Christians, it's tempted uh, to be up to speed on all the latest controversies and scandals in the church at large, right? We wanna know all the podcasts and all the articles, right? If, if, If you can tell me more about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, for instance, than any other event, literally any event in the history of the church, that might be a little troubling, right? We need to look further back, bigger perspective, And even if we genuinely have a concern for ministry, too often we're consumed with the latest trends in ministry, Uh, the the best use of technology and the new way to organize or grow a church, right? If you've been a Christian for even just like 10 years, you've probably already seen some of these trends kind of come and then kind of go, right? It's already sort of like totally old school, right? You guys remember Rob Bell (laughs) And, and the emergent church? Remember that? Seriously, like, you guys remember that? Like, who's doing that these days, right? That was cute. <laughs> what we see here in this passage is a call to the kind of faith that is ancient. To, to one cohesive story that God himself has been unfolding over many, many centuries. See, the beauty, church, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of his church and his kingdom and his mission, the beauty of these things that they're not new at all in fact all of these things and and even this is the point our very lives all of it is part of this very old story and there is something so comforting is there not and so grounding even when we think and live our lives in this way the truth is, this kind of backward-looking ancient faith, it can also have some, uh, give us some needed perspective on the future. Because if we stand in a long, long, long line of God's people and all of his activity through them in generations past, well, all of a sudden, it starts to click with us, doesn't it? Well, that long line is probably going to continue, I, I suppose, even long after me. I've been reflecting on this this week and looking at this passage and thinking about where we are as a church related to this building even. It just dawned on me this morning when thinking back on the scope of history, we are in a building that almost 150 years ago was literally a barn. Now I'm talking about that room (laughs) right there where some of you are sitting right now in overflow. 150 years ago today, if you walked in there, there might be some chickens running around and there's some hay, right? I'm not kidding you. And this is what we're doing here today, right? History is long. History is very interesting. As we consider adding a new sanctuary to this building, it's tempting to think... Well, what are all of our needs right now? What are we going to need in like 10 years from now, right? And of course, we have, to, we have to think about that. These are important questions to consider. But I couldn't help this week but to consider in light of this passage, I've been thinking, what if people are still preaching the gospel and making disciples in this new sanctuary we hope to build someday, but like 150 or 200 years down the road? We need this kind of age-old, still-unfolding perspective of our spiritual lives today. Let's look Back further than just our lifetime so we can make better sense of our future in light of King Jesus as Joseph does here. Next, let's also think bigger than just our life circumstances. Now here I'm not talking about looking backward in time. I'm talking more about looking upward, thinking bigger, thinking theologically, thinking spiritually about our lives. In order to see Jesus as the heavenly king he is, Joseph had to think bigger in this way than his immediate circumstance. Just who his son is this, for instance, and should I raise him or should someone else raise him? See, after this dream, Jesus was no longer just someone else's child. He had to kind of figure this out about, no, he was God with us. Here to rescue us from our sins. In other words, much bigger, far more spiritual than even the scope of Joseph's earthly life. In in the same way, for us to see Jesus as the heavenly king he is, we have to think far bigger and more spiritually about our lives than most people are often tempted to think, even inclined to think, especially these days. If someone had a dream like this today, we might expect them to go to their doctor and ask for medication that would prevent these kinds of heavenly (laughs) thoughts. It's kind of a joke, right? But it does illustrate our very real tendency to resist what is spiritual and heavenly and theological in favor of what is practical and immediate and just right there in front of us like our daily circumstances. This is a huge problem. I really believe it is because too often these days, if we're honest, we don't want to think bigger than our life circumstances. At every turn, we're told our lives really are all about us and we should just express whatever it is we feel inside at all costs because our inner life And everything that happens for us is ultimate. But with a worldview like that, it can be virtually impossible to think bigger than our life circumstances. Increasingly, as a result of this, we just don't have room for the spiritual or the theological in our worldview. Right? If your religion helps you get through Well, your life circumstances, that's fine. That's great. But as soon as it starts breaking outside of those bounds of of just your life, right? It's a little dangerous. That's a little too much. That's odd. We shouldn't be thinking in that way. This is increasingly the instincts of the world we live in. But church, listen, if that is how we approach our spiritual lives, as if it can only be relevant to our personal life circumstances here and now, well, I have to tell you, we will find no use for a passage like this one. None. We'll open our Bibles, we'll read this, and then we'll slowly close our Bibles, right? Okay. An angel came to Joseph in a dream and said he should marry his pregnant fiance because it was actually the third member of the Trinity who got her pregnant. And this is going to be a God baby. And somehow a prophet said this would all happen a few hundred years before it even did. Okay, got it. Thank you, right? But how's it supposed to help me? What's he supposed to do for me? Now, as Christians, this doesn't mean that God uh, disregards our life circumstances or doesn't care about them, just the opposite. Instead, it means we have to see all of life, including our circumstances, in light of what God is doing through it all. The point is that in our self-obsessed world, it's, it's tempting even as Christians to just long for solutions to the life circumstances that are troubling to us. But here what we see is that God does us one better than that. God doesn't just give us solutions in the person of Jesus Christ. This God has given us himself. In the person of Jesus Christ, this God has come to us to rescue us from our sins. And so maybe you've just failed in both of these areas, these two points, miserably even, as you sit here. And listen to this, you can't help but feel. Listen, I hardly ever consider anything that came before my life, let alone the story of God in Scripture. And I don't think bigger or more spiritually than my life circumstances, hardly ever. Maybe you've been in, in Joseph's shoes, even with an unwanted, unexpected pregnancy. And your enlightening dream with the message from this angel never came. And the honor or uh, uh, the horror, rather, of that crisis overtook you. Uh, you, you. You didn't press on or even break things off. Uh, you got an abortion. What should you do next? What wisdom does God have for you here in this terrible crisis like that? Well, I hope you see it's right here on the surface for you. It's our final point. It's to embrace the rescue of God with us. Let's look further back than our life circumstances. Let's think much bigger than just our lives. And let's embrace the rescue of God with us. Ultimately, the purpose of our looking back and thinking bigger is so that we can accurately see and truly appreciate the glorious riches of this Jesus so that we can see through our life circumstances, even the darkest, least flattering ones, to behold and to grasp hold of this great divine rescue. For those with no sin, rather those who ignore or deny their sin, Joseph's dream may not have been very persuasive, right? Why would I embrace this godchild who's come to do a thing like that, to save his people from their sins? I must not be one of these people because I don't even believe in sin. Or... I don't think I have a problem with it. A worldview like that minimizes and even explains away our sin will always keep us from embracing this King Jesus on his own terms. But even if we do acknowledge our sin, church, the truth is, it can be scary to embrace this Jesus. It can be scary not to know what following him will lead to in your life. It can be scary to build your life on these truths, these invisible spiritual truths and your faith in them, it can be. But when God speaks, when we hear from God himself, not necessarily in a dream, but even here in the pages of scripture, and when God makes these kinds of claims that Jesus is his son in human flesh who's come to save us from our sins, when God speaks in this way, there is only one appropriate response. And it's the response we see here in Joseph. It's to wake up, it's to press on with your life, and it's to embrace this child as your heavenly king. Church, God knows the anxieties that can often come when our paths cross with Jesus. Uh, He knows the other troubling circumstances we're faced with and how they intersect with our faith in Jesus. All the unknowns, the disappointment, uh, the, the loneliness, the fear. But rather than sending us an angel to say, listen, get over all that and get on my page. Rather, this God has sent us an angel to say, do not fear. Do not fear. I'm coming for you. In the person of Jesus Christ, I am coming to rescue you from your sins. I am coming to rescue you from all the dangers of life in a fallen world. That is the kind of hope that's available to us right here in the Gospel of Matthew, right here, even in this very story. But it depends how you look at it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this incredible story and all that it shows us about your plan of redemption, which has just, in this story, even taken countless leaps forward. God, we celebrate your work in revealing your your will and your gospel to Joseph and shifting his perspective so that this plan can march on We delight and we marvel at the thought of God with us in a fully human, fully divine person, this Jesus. Lord, we invite you to shatter our categories of who this Jesus even is and what he means for us. Would you do that for your glory and for our good? And would we come before him weak? and needy people longing for this salvation from sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.